Good morning. Would you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? This morning's scripture comes from Acts 9, 31 through 35. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone, again. Welcome to the Springs. My name is Pastor Alberto, and I have the honor and privilege of leading here uh, as the lead pastor of the Springs, uh, serving alongside our co-elder, Thaddeus, uh, who, who's somewhere in the back, just serving away. Uh, thankful, thankful to be here with you all this morning. Um, we are uh, in week two of a brand new sermon series that, that we're calling uh, Spirit Lead Me. And uh, if you followed along with our, our Galatians series, it seemed like we talked about the Holy Spirit uh, every single week. Uh, and, and, and you might be asking, like I said last week, why on earth are we doing a, a sermon series on, on, on the Spirit? Spirit Lead Me. It sounds so direct. And, and there might be some people in the room who are like, man, I've been waiting for this sermon series. Series. I'm ready to, to cast out devils and, and walk on water and, and just do all the spirit-led stuff. And, and then maybe there's other people in the room who are a little bit more apprehensive, like, like spirit lead me? Really? Uh, what, what does this mean and what's gonna, what, what does this entail? Well, um, we said last week that when we examine Paul's theology or understanding of the Holy Spirit, one thing that he does differently than the other authors of scriptures do is that Paul spends a considerable amount of time describing what the Holy Spirit does in a person. Uh, that, that when Jesus lives, dies, rises from the dead, uh, and, 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 and leaves and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God at work in us is empowering us to become more like Christ. Uh, the spirit of, of God at work in us is, is creating a greater degree of breakthrough and freedom in our life. The spirit of God adopts us and, and we're called sons and daughters of the king. Uh, Paul says that we're sealed with this assurance that because he's placed his, his spirit inside of us, we can be sure that he's coming back for us and ushering us into eternity. Paul has a lot to say about the work of the Holy Spirit in a person. Now there's one other author who has a lot to say about what the Holy Spirit does through a person. And this author is Luke. And Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And time after time, Luke is recording the specific experiences that happen when the Spirit of God comes over a person and begins to work through a person. And time after time, uh, Luke reminds us that Jesus did what he did, not only because he was the Son of God, but Luke says, because the Spirit of God was poured out over him and anointed him. 
to preach the good news, uh, to raise the dead, to open blind eyes, to set the captive free, informing us that the power that enabled Jesus to do ministry was the empowering presence of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, the scriptures make this radical claim that some of us believe, other of us are doubtful, and it's this, that the same empowered life that Jesus lived has been made available to you. Because Paul says in Romans 8 that the same spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of you. And the question that we're answering through this series is, well, what does it look like to live a spirit-led life? Not for our own sake and our own self-gratification and uh, our own personal victory, although the spirit brings victory, but in the attitude of Jesus and the way that Luke talks about it, what does it look like to live a spirit-led life for the sake of others? What does it look like to let God's empowering presence and spirit overcome you and enable you to love people that you never thought you were capable of loving? What does the spirit of God look like when it comes over you and in you and works through you to bring forgiveness and create harmony and unity and break a cycle of generational sin in your family? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to come over you and work through you to raise the dead, open blind eyes, uh, bring about healing and unity and restoration and renewal to the world? You see, the claim of Jesus is that he just doesn't deposit his spirit inside of us so that we can live isolated Christian lives. Rather, we're empowered by his spirit to do what Jesus did, to usher in the kingdom that's breaking into the wicked, dark world that we live in and embody the good news of the kingdom of God. That's sort of the ideas that we'll be covering uh, through this series um, and our time together. And a lot of the texts that are going to frame this, this series are going to come from the book of Acts and the book of Luke and uh, some other random scriptures that, that we're going to jump in there because that, that's how we do things. Uh, and, and it's going to be a really fun time, and I'm super excited. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31 through 35 one more time uh, as Elizabeth read with power. Uh, thank you so much. It says this, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was building and was being built up. This is a big claim because historically Judea, Samaria, and Galilee had different traditions and cultures going on. Judea would have represented sort of the, the religious elite. Galilee would have represented the poor and impoverished and vulnerable, where Jesus was from, a, a region known as the region of darkness. And Samaria would have been where all the Gentiles would have been pushed to. And now it's saying that these three regions that represent three almost opposing cultural ideas and lifestyles are being built up and and they're being unified by peace. That's awesome because that's what the work of the gospel does is that when the gospel comes in and takes over, the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has died to tear down every single wall of hostility and every single barrier that would create exclusion and superiority. And Jesus begins to unite and mend one unified family. And Luke is saying, we're seeing this before our very eyes, that that these regions are experiencing peace and they're being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went uh, here and there among them all, he came down uh, also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. 
And Peter said, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents, all of them, of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. We're going to unpack two movements that we see in this scripture that's going to frame the rest of our time together. That's fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Two rhythms, two ideas, two lifestyles that must be uh, sealed and cemented in our heart if we're going to live spirit-led lives. Fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at verse 31 again. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Fear of the Lord. Now, if you're anything like me and you grew up uh, uh, really new to the church and, and, and this was sort of a new idea, uh, upon reading this, uh, I, I remember the first time I heard this in 2011 as I was opening up the scriptures, fear the Lord? For what? And, you know, as an 18-year-old kid, I'm like, I ain't scared of no one. But I was scared of everything. But, you know, I didn't want, I'm not scared of the Lord. And so that's kind of where our mind goes when we think of fear of the Lord, we immediately, instantly connect this to a negative idea or a negative experience and where we scoff at this idea, uh, where we belittle this idea and minimize it, the ancients held it in such high regard. The ancients loved this idea and this idea of the fear of the Lord provided abundance, provision, safety, security, life, and joy. So what is the fear of the Lord, and and what does it have to do with the life of a follower of Jesus? Well, it's first uh, important to distinguish that the fear of the Lord is distinct from the terror of him. Those are two different opposing experiences. The terror of him is more of a negative experience, and fear of the Lord is a positive experience. So what does it mean to have the fear of God? Write this down. It means to have an attitude of awe and reverence. Fear of God means to have an attitude of awe and reverence. And and this is a central idea to biblical faith. And there's more than a hundred references to the fear of God playing a positive role in the life of a believer, not a negative one. Uh, Let me say this one more time. The fear of the Lord is not a negative thing. The fear of the Lord does not rob our life of joy. It preserves it. You see, the fear of the Lord moves our hearts to pursue and love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. To hold God in such high esteem, with such high reverence and awe, that his supremacy, his greatness, his wonder begins to dictate the way that you live your life. And because he is so grand and so amazing and so awesome out of reverence for him, the things that pleases his heart, you begin to pursue. And the things that break his heart, you begin to turn away from. The fear of the Lord moves our hearts to pursue and love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And over and over and over again, this is the pattern that we see in scripture. Obedience and faith is rooted in reverence and awe of God. That the most faithful and the most obedient 
in the scriptures, were not mustering up this radical faithfulness and radical obedience out of their own strength. Rather, they got a vision for how powerful and amazing and beautiful God is. And that vision of God reoriented and redirected their entire life. Uh, It's like gazing into the eyes of your newborn baby and realizing that the precious life that you're holding is going to redirect and reorient your entire lives, temporarily for the worst, uh, and then it gets better as I'm learning right now. So my son's at a fun age. So if it gets better than two, let me know. I'm not seeing any eyes in agreement, so I'm hopeless right now. Come on, somebody. There we go. Uh, It's realizing, being captivated by the beauty of God, that it redirects your entire life, the way that you're captivated by your spouse when you first start dating, the way you're captivated by your newborn child, and you'll do anything for that person. Being so filled with reverence and awe and love for God that you'll do anything for him. And obedience and faith is rooted in that idea. Now, the scriptures describe those who do not fear God, those who uh, do not hold God in high esteem as those who willfully pursue disobedience to God's way, those who reject God's standards. And instead of living God-centered lives, they live self-centered lives. Instead of letting the Lord rule and reign for themselves, they call the shots for their own life. And the scriptures are there to remind us over and over and over again that when the fear of God is absent in your life, it does not produce a life of abundance. It actually produces more chaos, more stress, more heartache, more brokenness. Because instead of giving over to God's rule and reign over your life, you begin to call the shots for your own life, and now you've become the judge, and you've become the authority, and no one's more fickle about what you think is good than you and I. And Paul would say this in Romans 3, after portraying a horrifying picture of sinful humanity. He says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God in their eyes. There is no reverence. There is no awe. There is no esteem for the Lord. They're not captivated by his beauty and grace and mercy. They're captivated by themselves. And instead of living God-centered lives, they live self-centered lives. And this idea in the scriptures is abundant over and over and over again. But if we're honest, it's scarce, maybe even absent in our own lives. Because if we're honest, we think to ourselves that this way of living and this way of thinking is an ancient way of thinking. We progressed. We know God. He's awesome. He's loving. He's graceful. He's kind. He's cool with me. And we begin to set the standards for our relationship with God instead of submitting to his standards. And this idea that was abundant and rich with life and meaning and joy has become scarce, maybe even absent in our own lives. Maybe because of apathy, maybe because of pride, or maybe we just believe this is truly an outdated way of thinking and it has nothing to do with the lives that we live. And the scripture says this idea, and you know this idea to be true. Hear me. If you don't fear God, you will fear something or someone else. And that fear will dictate and control your life. If you don't fear God, 
You will fear something or someone else. And whatever that fear is will dictate your life, will control your life. Because whatever you fear has mastery over your life. If you fear losing your money, you will be stingy and greedy. And instead of being generous and opening your wallets to bless others and the work of God, you will close your heart in an effort to remove any feelings of discomfort or lack because I fear being impoverished. I fear being in lack. And in doing so, you'll close your heart off to the generous heart of God who is a wonderful provider who meets all the needs of his children, but you're blind to see that because you let fear control your life that makes you look inward instead of looking Godward. If you fear rejection, you will move towards isolation to avoid being burned by people who said they love you and they, they, would, they would never do that to you. Or you'll settle to be a version of yourself that God never called you to be because you believe that that version of yourself will be the least rejected. And so instead of walking in faith, walking in boldness, claiming the identity that God has died to put you in, you settle for a lesser version of yourself, lesser controversial version, a safer version a version that avoids discomfort because that's easier to do than walk in all that God's called you to be. And the fear of rejection causes you to look inward instead of Godward. Uh, If you fear losing your spouse, if you fear criticism, if you fear your family, if you fear uncertainty and instability, whatever it is, fill in the blank. It will have mastery over your life. It will control your thoughts. It will control your decisions. It will produce a lesser version of yourself that believes comfort is found in the life with the minimum amount of pain and discomfort. And the scriptures make it abundantly clear that any fear of God, any fear besides the fear of God, is bondage. It is a form of emotional and spiritual slavery that is crippling. And if you feel this way, if you feel occupied by fear, by discomfort, by pain, if you find yourself Day after day, moment after moment, replaying the parts of your life that's caused you to look inward time after time after time instead of looking Godward and you begin to fill yourself with shame and criticism. If I was less fearful, if I was better here or had more victory there, I wouldn't be this way. If you feel consumed by fear this morning, hear me. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the fear of the Lord is liberating. And that walking in the fear of the Lord comes with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. John says this, that perfect love casts out all fear. That having that God, when he has power and mastery over your life because you fear him in the sense of awe and reverence and submission to him, that that's actually the most liberating and life-giving place you can be in because you're submitting your life to the mastery of a person who is personal 
and loves you and cares about you, who is good and who is life, where you submit your fear to things that are impersonal and don't care about you and just want to cripple you and keep you in bondage, God is the great liberator that when we submit our lives to him, he doesn't keep us in bondage. He doesn't restrict us. He sets us free to be the most free version of ourselves in Christ Jesus. That's why we've said this before. The fear of God is the one fear that can remove all fears. The fear of God is the one fear that can remove all fears. Uh, And hear me, the fear of God is an attitude and a lifestyle of people in the scriptures who have an experiential knowledge of God. The fear of God is an attitude, it's a lifestyle that people take on after having an experience with God. And and there's no better uh, illustration uh, than this in the the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter one. Man, I'm so into it, I forgot to call out Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, uh, Thaddeus is gonna put a Bible in your hand. Go ahead and raise your hand. We have some really nice Bibles. Those are yours to keep. Uh, We want you to look at the scriptures with us and, and, and then take it home, put your name in it, write your phone number. Church, I was so encouraged. I found one of those Bibles laying around and guess what? There was a name and number in it. And I was like, let's go. And I returned that Bible, and it was awesome. So put your name and number in it and take it home. Uh, We're going to look at at, at the book of Jonah. If if you're using that Bible, it's page 774. Uh, If you're not using that Bible, go to the table of contents and find it, because I don't know where it is in your Bible. Page 774, Jonah chapter 1. This is a great example of how uh, having an experience with God produces a fear of God that actually leads to a higher quality of life, that leads to freedom and not bondage. Jonah chapter 1, and we're just going to work our way through all 16 verses. Uh, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Uh, Here we have a city and a community that would be characterized with people living in it that did not fear God uh, because uh, the quality of life in that city was evil and that's sort of the life and, and, and the fruit that we produce when there's no fear of God in our eyes. But Jonah rose to to flee to Tarshish, the the exact opposite way that God was calling him, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, which was the farthest part of that known world, to go as far away as possible from where God was calling him to be, away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, But verse 4 says, uh, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, as you would be too. Uh, My son and I love to watch the show Wicked Tuna. And uh, the the plot line is the absolute same, which is why we love it. It's low stress. What are you going to do today? Catch a fish. That's it. Uh, There's not going to be any sort of relational tension, and we love it. Uh, But there does arise tension when there's a big storm over the sea, and and Discovery Channel has a brilliant way of dramatizing it, like, oh, no, everybody's going to die, and they cut to commercial, and you're, like, leaning in. What's going to happen? I've learned that that storms at sea are a very crucial, potentially life-altering, life-ending event. And so out of fear of this storm that they've never experienced before, they begin to go crazy. And they each cried out to his God, as we all do when we feel like our life is on the line. 
we pray those big, bold prayers. God, do something. God, rescue us. And in, in this region, they would have been each bowing down to their own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep, not a care in the world. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God, because we're all praying to our own individual gods, and they're doing absolutely nothing for us. Why don't you cry out to your own God? Perhaps the God will, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're concluding Jonah is a cursed man because they're experiencing this great event that is catastrophic. And verse 9 says, I, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, uh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Notice those two words, exceedingly afraid. That's the difference between the fear of the Lord and terror of him. In this moment, they were exceedingly afraid terrorized, captivated by a fear in the negative sense. When we come into God's presence, we're not afraid. We're filled with awe and wonder. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more to tempestuous. Uh, uh, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. This is bold. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, O Lord, all caps, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh Elohim, the one true God. These men who were just bowing down to their individual gods are now crying out to Yahweh. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not an innocent blood for you, O Lord. Have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They went from being afraid and, and, and filled with terror to awe and reverence. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh Elohim and made vows. This is incredible. Once the storm calmed, they greatly feared the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly. In other words, they were filled with so much overwhelming awe and reverence and wonder. They had cried out to God, and they saw God work in a unique, very inconvenient way, if I may ask, but we'll do a series on that later. And God answers their prayer, and they're so captivated by God's power because the waters that were about to kill them are now waters of peace. And they see firsthand the transcendent nature that God has over creation, and it compelled them, it moved them to serve him. 
to make sacrifices, to make vows, to, to commit their lives to him. Now, why does this matter? What we see in this place of scripture and almost every place in scripture is that the overwhelming example is this, that the fear of God stems from an experience of God's transcendence and divine power. Over and over and over again, we see individuals who fear God have had an experience with God, have experienced his transcendence, has, have experienced his power, have experienced him move in such a, a radically unique way that it compels them to bow down and worship him. And, and hear me, the key word here is experience, seeing God move, seeing him act, seeing him do things in our lives and the lives of others that reveal how powerful and how big and how amazing and how worthy he is of our life and devotion. So much so that this is what Luke would say in in Acts chapter one, verse one. Uh, In in the first book of Theophilus, he's writing to his friend, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice the order there. All that Jesus began to do and teach. The order here is important. Jesus would do things and then he would teach about them. Uh, More often than not, this was the normal pattern of Jesus' ministry. He would do something and then offer an explanation. Or maybe he wouldn't offer an explanation at all. Just like, get up and live. Okay, how'd that happen? Moving on, chapter five. Uh, This was the order of Jesus' ministry. And, and, And the reason this is important is because Tyler Staten points out that the scripture moves with this rhythm. Experience before explanation. Jesus would do something, and then he would explain it. And if we're honest with ourselves, in our own personal lives and in the world we live in, we prefer the reverse order. Give me the explanation, and then I'll think about experiencing it. And time after time after time, we limit God's work in our lives. We, we quench his spirit. We remove ourselves from his power and grace because we want the explanation first. And then the experience, if it matches up with our preferences, time schedule, uh, uh, our own lifestyle and calendar. We want logical explanation. And we'll even go as far as to say we want biblical explanation. But really what we're saying when we say that, what I've noticed is that we just want the explanation to match our preferences and our ideas of who God is and how he works. We want explanation before experience. We, we want detailed explanations of how God moves and works. Explanations that are so thorough and so rigid that it eliminates all uncertainty and maximizes control. Explanation that are so thorough and aligned with our preferences that it altogether removes the need for faith. Why? Because we trust the information more than the God behind the experience. And Tyler Satan goes on to point out that the only issue with this is the whole Bible. 
Because the Bible moves with uh, uh, experiences over explanations. The scriptures are filled with stories of individuals and communities who have experiences with God that are unexplainable, and then they spend their life working out those implications. You were talking to a what? A burning bush? Is that a thing? Can you explain it? No, but God met me and we're going to pursue radical faith and radical obedience. And he's told me to go to Pharaoh and set the people free. And they begin to work out the implications of the experience over and over and over again. The people of God in the scriptures have a radical experience with him. And the explanation comes much, much later. For example, Peter, in the text we read this morning, found a man named Ananias bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. We don't get any explanation about his condition. We get no explanation about his sinful history. We get no explanation uh, whether or not he's worthy to be healed. We, We don't even have an explanation about how healing works. Jesus just said, greater things than I, you will do. Go move in faith because you've been endowed with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. That's funny to me. I don't, I don't know what the theological significance is, but hey, you, you've been risen, now make this bed. For whatever reason, there's some, some, something impactful there. And, and, and this, guess what? Immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. When the Holy Spirit comes on us and through us, and we begin to move in the power and boldness of Jesus, it's not that w- so that we're exalted, it's so that others may turn to the Lord. And Luke begins to detail these experiences of followers of Jesus that are empowered by the Holy Spirit over and over and over again, producing experiences that are out of this world. Peter's shadow touching a person and then becoming healed. Uh, um, In another part, Paul preaching a sermon so boring that someone falls from the house to their death. And Paul's like, oh, let me raise you up. Uh, experiences of uh, 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 time after time of radical healings and radical signs and radical wonders. And Luke just leaves it there. Rarely are we given an explanation. Like, this is how it happens and this is why it works. He just uh, shows us the experience and it's followed up with this one simple explanation if there is one. Hear me, this matters for us today. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead and repent and turn to him and then the fear of God takes over and it produces a life of radical discipleship. You want the explanation? That's it. Over and over and over again. Experience that produces a fear of God in followers of Jesus that leads to radical discipleship, radical obedience, radical generosity. The German theologian uh, Erkart Schnabel says this, the way of life of the followers of Jesus in which they make progress is the fear of the Lord. As reverence for God who has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus, as an expression of the knowledge of God's revelation in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and as an expression of obedience to Jesus, whose followers they are, the fear of the Lord characterizes the entire life the believers. We begin to ask ourselves this question, well, how is my, I I know I'm in Christ. I know I'm saved. I know I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. I know that he lived, died, and rose from 
the dead. But how is your progress walking in that reality? Does it have to do with how much you fear God? This is not a, a moment to be condemned or feel indicted. This is an invitation to have an experience with God that transforms everything. The second rhythm that we see walking that will come through quickly is comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord that we just covered in, 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 in reverence and awe and wonder, having experience with him and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied, it grew, it blew up. And this, what's so incredible is that the one whom we fear is also a comforter. Walking in the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the unique aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to provide comfort. Where we run and bow down to the earthly things we fear and we orient our lives in such a way to avoid those fears so that we can experience the maximum amount of comfort, Jesus comes and liberates us from the mechanism of sin so that we can bow down to God fear him and experience life and freedom that's found in him. And the things that would once bring us discomfort are now overridden by a greater power and presence, the Holy Spirit. John says this, John 16, uh, 7 through 11, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Other translations say, it is better for me to depart so the Holy Spirit can come to you. And oftentimes we think to ourselves, man, if if I could choose between Jesus or the Holy Spirit in a face-to-face encounter with Christ or living a life with the Spirit endowed and dwelling in me, we choose the former. Where Jesus himself, the God of the universe, says, no, 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 no. It's better that I leave so that my presence can be inside you 24-7. And the same power that I walk in and the same communion that I have with the Father, you can now enter into because I've made you a temple and the presence now comes inside of you. And he goes on to say, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world uh, is judged. Now, uh, the, the Greek word that is translated here for helper is uh, parakletos, and, and it means to come alongside. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us, the way Jesus came alongside the disciples. And, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside to help us. Jesus calls them to help her. And, and how does he help us? Uh, three ideas. He, he's the counselor. The Holy Spirit is a counselor who teaches all things, who, who gives us wisdom, who enables us to search the scriptures and know God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is our advocate. Uh, The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, continues the work of Jesus, leads us into all truth, and convicts the world of sin. And lastly, the Holy Spirit is a comforter. The Holy Spirit ministers to us in the midst of earthly sorrows. This is the way Paul would say it in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait for adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is an aspect of the spiritual experience that we're all too familiar with that is marked by inescapable sorrow. That is marked by pain and despair and hurt. 
depression and stress, great grief and sadness. And Paul says that the things that cause us to groan inwardly, that the things that feel inescapable to us, God's power and presence comes alongside us to bring us a comfort that is out of this world. It has nothing to do with this world because it wasn't produced by the world. And he goes on to say that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Church, do you feel weak this morning? Do you feel gripped by the same sins that you tell yourself over and over and over again that you will overcome? Do you feel gripped by loss and fear and hopelessness? The Spirit of God comes alongside you to strengthen you, to allow you to walk in the power and victory and Christ. And when you don't know what to pray or you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God that comes alongside of you, intercedes for you with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. When you weep, someone is beside you, the comforter. When you feel pain, the Holy Spirit is with you. When you fear, you can find comfort in the Holy Spirit who leads us to an awe-filled experience with the Father that casts out all fear and produces a holy fear of God. Philip Ryken would say this. This is a beautiful picture of the personal friendship between God and his child. In this life, we will experience depths of grief and despair that far exceed our capacity to express them. But do not imagine that the secret sorrows and hidden wounds of the heart exceed the Spirit's capacity to understand and to heal. The Spirit understands the hidden wounds of your hearts. The Spirit understands the sorrows and grief and pain that you're going through. And the Spirit understands it and is so acquainted with it that he knows how to heal it. We may lament the sins of the church and the sins of the nation in private, but we do not weep alone, he says. We have a comforter in sorrow. Church, this is an experience that God is inviting us to experience, walking in dependency upon God's power and presence. You see, the early followers of Jesus were strengthened as they lived in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. A life that is led by the Spirit, hear me, is one that fears God and finds comfort in the Holy Spirit. So my questions as we come to a close, where do you find comfort this morning? Do you find comfort in the Lord, sitting at his table, being in his presence? Or do you find comfort in escaping the sorrows of the world by beginning a never-ending binge of your favorite TV show, or favorite hobby? Do you find comfort by saying, just one more drink, I'm fine, I know my limits, it's been a really stressful day. Do you find comfort by looking at your bank account and seeing, okay, the numbers are, are where I want them to be. I'm going to be okay. 
Do you find comfort by hearing a good report from your kids at school or kids' church because that makes you feel like they're going to be well and it provides a sense of security in your life? Do you provide comfort by scrolling through social media and then liking things that agree with you and match your preferences so that every time you get on social media, you see things that affirm you and validate you and make you feel better? Where do you find comfort this morning? Is it in what this world has to offer, offer, or is it with an experience from a God who is out of this world, supernaturally at work in our hearts, driving away the fears, discomforts, and pains that we run away from, that he walks us through to produce in us a life that we couldn't do on our own, that is for our maximum good and his glory? Where do you find comfort this morning? Second, where do you go find strength? Is it in your own resources, your own abilities, your own ideas and knowledge? Or is your strength found in radical dependence upon the one who is truly strong, King Jesus and his spirit at work in you? Church, this morning, I believe God is inviting us to have an experience with him. In this next moment, we're going to pray that we would experience him, um, and things that are inexplainable are going to happen. God's power and presence is going to touch you and minister to you in a way that you could never imagine. And it's going to bring a greater degree of freedom and breakthrough and awe and wonder that moves your heart to radical faith and radical obedience. Why am I so confident in this? Because Luke himself said, That when we pray to God and ask him for the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's a generous good father who will not turn us away, but freely pour it out. If you believe that this morning, let's enter into his presence. Will you pray with me?